all this VVS stuff makes me want to come up. It's like, you know, CIA and secret agent. And I just love procedurals. It makes me want to come up with some kind of series where we explore murderers of the Bible. You know, we could start with Cain and move on to David. I don't know. We're going to be in Judges, though, this morning. Uh, We're finishing up the last four chapters of it. We've been walking through it uh, since January. And so uh, we're winding down here. We're in the appendix and we're getting details on what exactly the evil that Israel was doing in the sight of the Lord, what exactly that evil looked like. So you can find it on page, I think, 183, if you're using a pew Bible there. And we're going to be in chapter 17, uh, starting at verse 7. And last week we worked through the first six verses, and uh, I guess to refresh you just a little bit, uh, we're going to revisit that quickly. Uh, We met Micah, who stole a bunch of silver from his mom, and uh, upon hearing his mom pronounce a curse on the one who took her silver, he said, hey, you know what, I'm going to come clean. And when he came clean, his mom pronounced a blessing instead of a curse on the one who took the silver from her. And, uh, well, she kind of pronounced a blessing, if you remember. She, she said, blessed be the, my son. And what happened as a result of that was she was going to offer this silver to God in the temple. And she was going to have an idol made and then placed in the house of Micah. And so Micah takes this idol of silver that was originally stolen from his mom and then returned to him as an idol. Keep up, right? He puts it in his little temple tabernacle type deal that he has going on in his house. And the last thing we saw him do was install or anoint his own priest, which was one of his sons. All of this, of course, is antithetical to God's command and and blatant disobedience to the Lord's instruction for proper worship. Micah was acting in sin and verse 6 helps to clarify that for us because it was the key verse and it's going to be the key verse again this week as we work through it that in those days there's no king in Israel and everybody's doing what is right in their own eyes and what's right in Micah's eyes is approaching God in a way that suits him and so he's kind of reshaped God to look a little bit more like himself a little bit more like what he wants God to look like. And so last week we discussed the importance of theology. We said that theology matters and that flawed theology or flawed thinking about God will overflow into flawed living. We said that theology matters. This week we're going to continue to see the effects of poor theology in the life of Micah and in the life of a few other people that come around Micah. We're going to meet an AWOL Levite priest. And then a group that I've called the Dan Five. They're these spies from the tribe of Dan, and they're looking for some land. And I just call them the Dan Five, and they're going to represent the whole tribe of Dan as well as themselves. All of these characters are going to demonstrate that what doing what is right in their eyes is more important than a genuine relationship with the God of the universe. They're going to demonstrate to us a deep-rooted love for sin. Each is going to demonstrate something whether it's a shrine or themselves or their settlement, is more important to them than the presence of God. Something else is at the center of their reality. And the question that I want you to wrestle with this morning as we work through the text is, what or who is at the center of your reality? We're going to work through the text in four parts. We're going to look at a business deal, the easy way, an empty house, and a pagan shrine. 
A business deal, the easy way, an empty house, and a pagan shrine. Before we do all that, let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that this portion of Judges is not often studied, that it's very grim and glib, and um, it's very dark. So, Lord, we just ask that you help us to see your purpose in this text, that you help us to see the gospel spring that lies beneath it, that you help us to embrace it and to be changed by it, because your word, well, it's mighty to save. It's profitable for teaching and correcting and rebuking. It's what shows us how to live life best, how to love you best. So use your word this morning to transform our hearts and to change our very lives so that we find you at the center of our reality. Amen. A business deal. So in verse 7, we come across this Levite, and he's been wandering around, kind of sojourning from place to place instead of serving his city as a priest. And by chance, he runs into Micah, who's been working on his own tabernacle, temple-type deal. And Micah thinks to himself, what a great opportunity. This is a Levite. This is who serves in the temple of God, or who's supposed to serve in the actual temple of God. And so he thinks to himself, I'm going to get a little bit closer to orthodoxy than I have been. I'm going to try to get this Levite priest to serve in my temple. And ultimately, he does. But see, getting a little bit closer to true north still leaves Micah dead wrong. Because God must be worshipped according to his word, not human ideas. Micah's ideas have, to this point, led him to believe that the closer he comes to keeping God's actual commandment, even though he's worshipping him in a way that's entirely wrong, the closer that he gets to keeping that commandment, the more in his debt he can put God. In other words, he's kind of thinking, if I do A, then God has to do B. Maybe you think of it like uh, if you're good enough throughout the year and the good you do outweighs the bad, then at Christmas time, Santa has to bring you presents rather than coal, right? That's, That's how he's viewing his relationship with the Lord. And that's what we see in verse 13, which says, Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me. Why? Because I have a Levite as priest. Here's the problem. Micah is half-heartedly obeying God. And remember all the way back in chapter 1, we said half-hearted obedience is no obedience. He's half-heartedly obeying him, but he's doing so out of a desire to get God to do what he wants. See, that's what religious effort often does. See, the purpose of religious effort is to get access to God so that we can get God to do what we want. That's what Micah's doing here. He's trying to get God to do what he wants. Whereas the goal of true faith, of genuine faith, worshiping God according to his word, rather than our wants and desires, is to give God access to our hearts so that he can get us to do what he wants. I don't really know why you would want to serve a God that you can manipulate anyway. And after all, I think that if we can manipulate a a being that uh, claims to be God, If we can manipulate it, it ceases to be God, right? It just doesn't make sense to reshape a God as Micah has. And reshaped gods, these idols that we often uh, pledge our affections to, have no power to rescue or to bless. In fact, they're powerless to even define themselves. I mean, this idea that we can put God in our debt or make him prosper us in some way, it's nothing more than silly superstition. Maybe it looks like in your life you you make a deal with God. Maybe you've done this. 
Uh, I've used this example a couple times when I was coming up to interview for the job here. Uh, normally, I'm not a big fan of Christian radio, but I turned on like the Christian radio station and thought, if I listen to Christian radio, the Lord's going to be happier with me when I go into to interview and to preach there. Or I've even, you know, if I have my quiet time every day this week, Lord, then you'll do blank for me. When I was younger, I used to say, Lord, if I, you know, if I pray every day this week, maybe the Browns will win on Sunday. Uh, I quickly learned that that didn't work out at all. I even, this week, you know, sports are superstitions everywhere in sports. I love it. People wear the same socks, the, the same underwear, the same jersey for a whole season for, for good luck. And I heard a story this week where, uh, with the World Cup, I don't know if you follow soccer a whole lot, but the World Cup is coming up, and it's, I guess it's kind of a big, a big deal. And there's a, a soccer star named Cristiano Ronaldo. And prior to, uh, he's been injured. He's got an injury in his knee, I guess. And prior to his injury, uh, an influential witch doctor from Ghana, known as the Devil of Wednesday. I guess he only does evil on Wednesday. I don't, I don't know. Uh, he vowed to hex this soccer star. So he's going to be injured before the World Cup. So this guy got injured, and this witch doctor is taking credit. I don't, I don't know if the hexing works or how he did it. Stir up a potion, put it on an action figure. I don't, I don't know. But the superstition is he believes that he caused this injury. It's It's silly. The point is, is that we're no less superstitious and that Mike is no less superstitious. When we think that we can make God do what we want by performing particular religious activities, it's silly. The God of the Bible is all powerful. He's untamable and he cannot be domesticated. Motivations for Micah's actions reveal that his heart was truly wicked. And the motivation for our actions will reveal what's truly at the center of our reality, what's really driving us. Micah proves that his shrine and his own worship is at the center of his life. I think it's hard not to see ourselves in him. Who's at the center of your reality this morning? Christians follow God so that they can learn to do what he wants not so they can figure out a way to get what they want. Why are you following Jesus? Secondly, we should also point out in this business deal section that Micah talks the Levite into this, and you would think a good, God-fearing Levite would not be interested in you know, serving as priest to a shrine. So how is Micah able to talk him into this? And, and Block writes, and I think pointedly, The Levite, instead of denouncing Micah for his abhorrent cult and warning him of the dangers of his course of action, capitalizes on this glorious opportunity. Micah has opened new doors for him by offering him meaningful employment and guaranteeing his well-being for the rest of his life. Blinded by his own ambition to the heterodoxy of the situation, the young Levite can't resist the heady offer of fatherhood within the nation of Israel. The prospect of being looked to as a spiritual advisor and a mentor of this rich man is intoxicating. No one in his right mind would turn it down. But in the mind of the narrator, the Levite's acceptance of the position represents another symptom of the deep and pervasive nature of sin and the canonization of Israelite society. Israel has become like the people they were supposed to expunge from the land. 
the Levite can't pass up the opportunity of being employed by somebody as rich and as influential as Micah. And so he strikes a deal that leaves him more as butler than as priest. One who would serve Micah's wants and desires and Micah's theology rather than the true God of the universe. Which brings us up to chapter 18, the easy way. Verse 1 reminds us of what we read in verse 6, that there's no king in Israel. But we're missing the second part of that verse in verse 6. It says everybody does what's right in their own eyes. 18 just says there's no king in Israel. And it's for the purpose of pointing us to that which follows is going to be an example of people doing what's right in their own eyes. It's assumed. He doesn't even need to say it. And it's here that we meet who I'm going to call the Dan Five. They're the five spies from the tribe of Dan. And they're tasked with searching out a place of land for the tribe to settle. They're stuck looking for a place to settle better than the hill country that they currently live in. Because if you remember all the way back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, they failed to drive out the people of the land as God had commanded them to. They obeyed half-heartedly and that was no obedience. And therefore, they're stuck in the hill country. Their lack of obedience resulted in a lack of inheritance. And so now they're seeking a place to call home. In their search, the Dan five come across Micah's place and they say, hey, man, can we stay here for a few days? Micah says, all right, you can hang out for a little while. And it's then that they recognize the voice of this priest. They know him from somewhere and they catch up and say, hey, how did you come to be here? What have you been up to? And the Levite basically says, look, uh, I'm not really serving God anymore. I'm serving this guy, Micah, and he's been very, very good to me. He's paying me well and I'm, I'm living the good life. Instead of rebuking the Levite, the the Dan five, they say, hey, uh, what do you think about this search we're on? Can you inquire of God for us and see if it's in his will? They actually use the uh, general name for God. God has two names that he's referred to in the Old Testament. One is Elohim, and that's just kind of very general. It could be just about any God. And then he has a covenant name that's specific for Israel, and it's Yahweh, right? And instead of inquiring of Yahweh's will. They ask what the will of Elohim is, and that's very telling about where their hearts are. They're not truly concerned with what the God of Israel wants from them. And the Levite responds with a glib and ambiguous, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. This is pretty ambiguous, right? It's not, it's not saying there's blessing or curse, but uh, these guys, they're going to hear what they want to hear And so they say, hey, this is God's blessing and assured by a pagan Levite working at an idolatrous shrine, they find good land, which they can take by their own strength. See, they're not going to have any need to rely on God or be obedient to his word. They've simply decided that God has blessed them. And so they've set out to take the land of a, a quiet and unsuspecting people outfitted with this justification for their desire to take the land the Danites head towards Laish. On the way, they pass Micah's house again, and they decide with them and their whole tribe that the perfect addition to their new home is going to be this wonderful-looking shrine. And since they're going to take the shrine, they might as well take the rest of Micah's gods as well as the priest that he's acquired to himself. And so they steal them in verse 18. I mean, the whole sequence is uh, it's kind of funny, I think, and, and a little bit ironic. We have this silver that Micah stole from his mother that was then turned into an idol and then given back to him is now stolen from him. 
This is a hot item. Nobody can hold on to it. It just keeps getting stolen over and over again. I think it's kind of funny. Secondly, we see that the Danites, uh, they didn't obey the Lord and his command to drive out the people back in early chapters. And they were just kind of half-hearted about it. But now that they've decided they want to take land from a quiet and unsuspecting people, they're not half-hearted. They're all in. They're wholehearted and enthusiastic in their pursuit of getting what they want. And we do this too, don't we? Eager to justify what we want to do and take the easy way rather than being obedient to what, would God, what God would have us do. I think we're much more ready and enthusiastic about following our hearts than following the will of the Lord, which is often hard and inconvenient. We often excuse our disobedience under the gloss of religiosity. I think we, like Dan, make the pursuit of our own wants look Christianly so that we can avoid feeling condemned, so that we can avoid feeling sinful. I think we act a lot like Pharisees and clean the outside of the cup, the outside of our lives, so that when people observe us, they think that we're godly. We have the appearance of godliness, but we lack any of its power because on the inside we are filthy as we rely on ourselves and pretend that it's dependence on the Lord. We, like Dan, simply take the easy way out and go after the land that we want rather than what God has called us to. Not truly concerned with what God wants, but with what we want. Dan has its settlement at the center of its reality. Likewise, we often have ourselves at the center of our reality. What is your center? What's the center of your life? Next, we see the Danites, that they've taken Micah's idols and they're headed for this city that they're going to take. And they also take his priest. And notice in uh, verse 18, the priest offers a little bit of objection. He says, what are you doing? As they gather around the outside of the room, they're going to take the idols. And, and the Levite, who is unnamed at this point, says, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing? These idols belong to Micah. And in verses 19 and 20, they say this to the Levite. This is how the tribe of Dan responds. Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us. Be a father to us and a priest. Is it better for you to be a priest of just one man in his house or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. See, the Levite's heart is glad here. Because he's motivated not by a desire to serve God, but a desire to make much of himself. He's motivated by this money and he's motivated by self-promotion, self-ambition. Block points out for us, says this, Similarly, the spiritual service of many current pastors is motivated not by the call of God, but by the opportunities for personal gain. The question the Danites pose to him is asked every day by pastoral search committees. Which is better, to be the pastor of a small rural church or to be the pastor of a megachurch? The contemporary problem of ambition and opportunism in the ministry has at least a 3,000-year-old history. Think these idols of opportunism and selfish ambition and self-promotion and of wealth are not exclusive to the Levite, and they're not exclusive to pastors. 
think these idols extend to all of us. They motivate all of us. And they would make our hearts glad if we were made much of, if we could get just a little bit more money, if we could be just a little bit more popular. What motivates you? What makes your heart glad? What's at the center of your reality? An empty house. In verses 22 and 23, we see that Micah will not take this theft lying down. He gathers uh, his whole house and all of his neighbors and they chase down this tribe of Dan. I mean, they're ready for a fight. They're ready to throw down. And they're greatly outnumbered to the point that the Danites respond like, what's the matter with you? Why would you come out after us? You have no chance of winning. I mean, we'll, we'll wreck you in like a second. It won't even be a fight. And Micah responds to them, you took the gods I've made in my priest. What else do I have? The gods that Micah's made with his own hands are powerless to protect him. And they're powerless to protect themselves. He's plundered and left with nothing. And I think this is a blessing. If you remember, his mom reversed the curse that would be pronounced on the one that stole the silver and pronounced a blessing. And I think this is it. God has mercy enough on Micah to bring him to the end of himself. So he graciously rids Micah of that which is the center of his reality. So that Micah might know that in having nothing but God, he would find true life. You know, Micah exits at this point in the story, and we, we aren't really told how things go for him. We're just told that he turns and goes home. But I like to think that this event served as a wake-up call for him. That being left with nothing, he recognized that nothing but the true God of Israel and true worship of him would satisfy Keller writes, in the end, self-made religion will disappoint. Whatever we make into our God, whether money or power or relationships or even a reduced and man-made version of the true biblical God, these things will not deliver. And ultimately, death removes all the false gods that we look to for blessing. Micah was blessed in that he discovered the emptiness of his God before he died and it was too late. Likewise for us, I hope that we would come to the ends of ourselves and recognize these things that we look to for satisfaction and for identity have no power to truly identify us, no power to truly bless or rescue us. That eventually they would, uh, we would come to the end of them before we die and it's too late. I mean, whatever we look to eventually disappoints when it's self-made. I like sports, so I often think of them in analogies. It's, it's like uh, if I look to my athletic ability to define myself, to define my worth, and my athletic ability is my God, eventually it's going to disappoint me when Father Time catches up, right? Even if I'm a professional athlete, you know, Father Time catches up, and eventually I'm not going to be able to identify myself with athletics. Maybe you don't think I'm too athletic, so maybe we'll use a better example. Uh, Y'all know who LeBron James is, maybe? You know, the other night he was playing in the finals, he, he cramped up, and I thought, man, what a great example of, it could be taken from you in a moment. You know, he was, he's this, this athletic specimen. All of a sudden he can't play because it's too hot in the building. He didn't drink enough water. 
But the point is, my point here, before I digress too much, (laughs) is that anything we look to other than the Lord is ultimately going to disappoint us. It's going to be taken from us. Maybe instead of athletics, if that doesn't work for you, maybe you look to beauty and image, and that's how you define yourself. People think you're beautiful. But what happens eventually, you're going to age and you're going to get older, and it's going to be disappointing. Self-made religion always disappoints. What's the thing that, if it were taken from you, would leave you saying, I have nothing left? That thing is an idol. What's the center of your reality? There's only one God who will never be taken away from us. And he's the one uh, of whom we can say with Peter, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, if we know Jesus is all we have, we will discover that he is eternally all we need. When we find Jesus, we find blessing. He is the blessing. He is the inheritance. I hope that Micah came to the Lord through these events as he was driven to the end of himself. I believe that he was blessed by having his counterfeit gods removed from him. Yet Dan, despite its success, will find ends up cursed and with the silver, a pagan shrine pagan shrine. The tribe of Dan has these false gods now, and they have the Awal Levite priest, and they've now taken the land. This is a tribe that was born into God's people of Israel, but now they live outside of God's land. They don't listen to God's word. They worship him in a way that is entirely at odds with his commands. See, Dan has had tremendous success They decided what they wanted. They set up a plan and they saw that plan through. It was successful. But the point here, which we'll see in the text, is that success can be a curse. Success can be a curse. Sin sometimes succeeds in the short term. Block writes, Ironically and perhaps tragically, the agendas that people set for themselves are sometimes achieved which sends a solemn warning to the church here at the close of the 20th century. Success is not necessarily a sign of righteousness or an indication that we must be doing something right. It may, in fact, be the opposite. God does not stifle every corrupt thought and every evil scheme of the human heart. Success is not evidence of blessing. God can, in fact, be allowing success as a form of judgment. God has given the Danites over to the lust of their hearts, over to what they truly want. If we remember in Romans 1, what is God's judgment on the people? He gives them over to what they want so that their consciences are seared and they can't see that which is holy. They're wandering in darkness, but they are clueless to the fact tribe of Israel has become as wicked as the people that they were supposed to expunge from the land. And they're ignorant to their desperate condition. It's as if they're drowning in an ocean, but have no uh, wits about them to cry out for help. They've confused their success for blessing. They don't see the need to repent. 
think this is true in our own lives, that sin is often much less overt and much less obvious than we expect. Usually creeps into our lives unnoticed so that we become apathetic or ignorant to it. It's not that big of a deal. Which is why I think C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turns, without milestones, and without signposts. See, success is at the center of reality for the Danites. And it's leading them to death. What is at the center of your reality? Coming towards the end of our text here, we see in verse 30, uh, kind of a, the butler did it moment. If you follow murder mysteries here, we've been going, calling him the Levite to this point, And the narrator did that on purpose because here is a gotcha moment. We find out who this Levite is. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, not a big deal, the son of Jerushim, I probably didn't pronounce that right. The son of Moses. That's the important part. The son of Moses and his sons were priests of the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. One of the holiest families in all of Israel, the family of Moses, is now leading the rebellion against the Lord. The Levite, who is a descendant of Moses. See, this problem of religious syncretism is so deeply rooted that it's infected the most sacred institutions and even the most revered household in Israel. Even the family of Moses is infected with this sin of idolatry. Here we have proof positive that God does not have any grandchildren. Every individual must find God personally and individually. No one is related to God by family tree or tribe or denomination or local church. No one is related to God by pedigree, but a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. As D.A. Carson notes, one generation knows the gospel, the next assumes it, and the third loses it. Nowhere is this better seen in Scripture than in the family of Moses. The center of reality for even the family of Moses turned out to be sinful. The focal point of God's people and of the family of Moses and of the tribe of Dan and of Micah should have been the tabernacle that was at Shiloh. But instead it was on something else, on shrine, self, or settlement. The tabernacle should have been their focal point because this was the place of God's presence among his people. The tabernacle was where the people of Israel would draw near to hear from God, to worship God, to stand in his presence. Sam Storms writes, Against this backdrop, we read the stunning declaration of the Apostle John in the first chapter, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word translated dwelt literally means to pitch a tent or to live in a tabernacle. And unmistakably points back to the Old Testament when God's glory took up residence in the tent of Moses, in the tabernacle, and eventually Solomon's temple. John's point here is that God has chosen to dwell with his people in yet a more personal way, in the word who became flesh, Jesus. 
Jesus is the ultimate glory of God, the complete and perfect manifestation of the presence of God among his people. The place of God's glorious dwelling is the flesh of his son. The glory which once shined in the tent, tabernacle, temple of old was simply a foreglow, a mere anticipatory flicker of the glory that we now see embodied in Jesus. The tabernacle, the place of God's presence among his people, should have been their focal point rather than this idolatrous shrine, this false tabernacle that they had set up. Likewise, our focus should be the true and better tabernacle. Because Jesus not only tabernacled among us, but died for our sins that we might die to sin. And he lives that we might live. He lived the perfect life and died the perfect death so that we could take his righteousness as he took our sin. Does this so that we can have true blessing, true peace, so that we can have relationship with him. So I ask you this morning, is sin, idols, money, self, whatever it is, is sin or is the Savior the center of your life? Who or what is at the center of your reality? If you're a Christian this morning, the answer must be Jesus. Is he? Is Jesus the center of your reality? 